Today we are going to be reading from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. So if you have your Bible, please turn there as we read this passage. If you do not have your Bible, it is available in the Pew Bibles on page 528. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. This is the word of the Lord. Sam is preaching for us today. Those of you who do not yet know Sam, Sam and Emily are in our Bonhoeffer House Seminary training cohort and have two beautiful children. Ella and Eva. Um, Sam is in our church planting track, so he's a church planting resident, which means he, if he graduates in May, Lord willing, <laughs> right? Yeah. Planning to, everything's looking good, tracking to graduate in May, and then spend about a year or so really making ready to plant a church. And so we continue to invest in them. We love them. He serves this church in so many ways. You, Many of you already know him for that. I want to pray for him as he brings the word to us this morning. Lord, thank you for Sam and Emily and the girls and what a beautiful uh, investment they've made in this body. And I pray that you would minister your word to us. Um, this passage would come alive to us. Minister through your servant today. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Enjoy. Good morning. Am I on? Okay. It's not my first rodeo, but it's always good to have your mic on. I'm going to open my Bible to Proverbs chapter 3. Welcome again to Cave Spring Baptist Church. We're glad that you're here with us this morning, whether you're with us in person or online. We're in week three of a series called The Way of Wisdom, unpacking the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is not just a theological treatise about fear of the Lord or trusting in the Lord. It's a guidebook for wise living. It helps us have the wisdom that we need 
to navigate the complexities of life in God's world with nuance and skill. And in Proverbs chapter 3, we learn that wisdom begins with trust. So trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord is the natural complement to what we read in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear and trust work together like two sides of a coin. In humility, we open ourselves up to being instructed by God. Fear of the Lord. And that requires that we trust the Lord. But that can be a difficult skill to master. Think about it this way, that some of us are in an apprenticeship under a skilled master carpenter. And so we set off to Lowe's and we buy a nice, shiny new tool belt. We get a nice, shiny hammer. We get a full set of pencils and sharpen them, not just one. You got a couple spares in case somebody else on the job site needs one. Even pick up a couple of the latest gizmos and gadgets that promise to make your life easier, more simple, to make the job more efficient and effective. And you set off your apprenticeship to learn from this master carpenter. You watch what he does, you're picking up all the tricks of the trade, all, all the skills that he's mastered. You're asking him questions, you're making comments about how he's doing things. And you set off to your area of the job site. You're figuring out clever new ways to do things differently, to do things more quickly. You're using all your gizmos and gadgets. But there's a key difference between us and the master carpenter. The master carpenter's tools are worn. The varnish on the handle of his hammer is completely gone. His hands are firm and calloused. His voice is mild from listening more than speaking. His mind is sharp. He's taken the time to master the art and craft of carpentry. All that we've acquired are some tricks of the trade. And if we're not careful, we'll get ourselves in over, the head with the, over our heads with the tricks of the trade because we've never acquired the skill necessary to perform the task. We've never actually found wisdom. We need wisdom. We need the art and craft of discernment. And wisdom begins with trust. Some of you are saying, I already trust in the Lord. But I wonder if you, like me, sometimes sound like this. This whole year has just been a revolving door of sickness in our house. Fingers crossed, it's not me. What should I do with my life? I think I want to be an accountant. So I head off for a job interview. They chart out the next 30 years for me. If I take this job, there's a clear path from here to retirement. Lord, I trust in you. I'm going to follow their plan for the next 30 years. Let's lock it in. I have felt weak physically and emotionally, particularly this last month. And in the midst of that, it's looked often like frustration and fear, not wisdom, not trusting in the Lord. A lot of this a lot of wisdom we have to sort out for ourselves. I wish Proverbs 3 was as easy as just me like a mama bird chewing it up and then spitting it back out for you, but it's more like a jolly rancher, and you're going to have to nurse some of this for yourself. If you chomp down on it, you'll break a tooth. We need to grow in our trust in the Lord and ask Him to make us wise. What if this morning you feel actually don't trust in the God, in God, 
I have a general distrust of authority, or maybe just I don't trust in God because he's just going to let me down. I prayed yesterday that he would intervene, that he would answer, and today I'm filled with more anxiety, and what I asked for yesterday looks like it's not going to happen today. I'm just going to stop praying. Nothing good happens when I pray. I'm better off on my own. I can empathize with a deep disappointment with God. For many of us in the room, we've wrestled with disappointment with God. We have to trust something to live. I don't see anyone hovering over the pew. You've sat firmly down on something, and we all trust in something to live. And so the question is, is what you're trusting in better or more reliable than trusting in the Lord? Why should you trust in the Lord? I want to walk through six reasons, at least six reasons that are here. Again, you're going to have to nurse this for yourself that the the author of Proverbs gives to us as to why we should trust in the Lord. So let's look again at verses one and two. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Why should you trust in the Lord? Because you'll live a meaningful and peaceful life. Proverbs, one, Proverbs 3 reads like a love letter from a father to a son, from a parent to a child. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. It's not just a simple restatement of the Torah or the Old Testament law. He's fleshing it out for his son. This is what it looks like to apply wisdom in your life. But this isn't just rote memorization and recitation. It moves from head to heart. Let your heart keep my commandments. A heart that has been changed by God finds purpose and peace. Psalm chapter 90 puts it this way, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. There's never enough time. Everything is an interruption. Been reading uh, with a couple of the guys this book, The Rest of God, um, and I think it's been really instructive on this point. I'll read a a short quote here. Think a moment of all the events and encounters that have shaped you the most deeply and lastingly. How many did you see coming? How many did you engineer, manufacture, or chase down? And how many were interruptions? Children, you may have planned as meticulously as a NASA rocket launch, but did you have any idea Really, what it would be like. Who is this child in your arms? Who would you become because of him or her? The span between life as we intend it and life as we receive it is vast. Our true purpose is worked out in that gap. It's fashioned in the crucible of interruptions. We can't control everything, and we'll miss the truly important things if we try. Oliver Berkman, in his recent book, uh, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, calls this the paradox of limitation, that the more, he writes, the more you try to manage your time with the goal of achieving a feeling of total control and freedom from the inevitable constraints of being human, the more stressful, empty, and frustrating life gets. But the more you confront the facts of finitude instead and work with them rather than against them, the more productive, meaningful, and joyful life becomes. I don't think the feeling of anxiety ever completely goes away. 
We're even limited, apparently, in our capacity to embrace our limitations. But I'm aware of no other time management technique that's half as effective of just facing the way things truly are. We've tried to life hack and self-help and technique our way into length of days and years of life. But there isn't a method, there's not an app or a journal or a whiteboard brainstorming tool that will lengthen your life. It's finite. Berkman understands limitations and finitude, but without fear of the Lord, his method is also just a tool or technique. It's just a trick of the trade. We'll see our time differently in the fear of the Lord. We'll give up control to him. We'll embrace that sense of limitation, that sense of I'm not in control. We can receive then every day as a gift and every moment as a gift from him. Then time expands like the sands falling through Professor Slughorn's hourglass. Time doesn't just change quantitatively, though. It changes qualitatively. It gives us peace. How do you get peace? How are you working for peace? Just gather the facts. Scroll Twitter or Instagram or Reddit. Collect all the data, and what do you get? Just a deeper, overwhelming sense of everything that is wrong with the world and your powerlessness to do anything about it. Or maybe just work harder. Some of us are just trying too hard for peace. You've worked hard to be good at what you do, to manage your affairs well, to live a well-ordered life. But where does peace go when you're diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease or Parkinson's disease? Where does it go when your mental acuity starts to fade with age? When after all of your hard work, you still get passed over for that job that you were working for? Why should you trust in the Lord? Because you want to rightly number your days. You want peace, and he'll give it to you. Verses three and four, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Why trust in the Lord? You want a meaningful and peaceful life and you want to gain a favorable reputation. What kind of friend do you want? I want a friend who's steadfast and faithful, as Proverbs describes. The kind of person who binds love and faithfulness around their neck and writes it on their heart, that kind of person gains a good reputation. You want a friend who, when everyone else forsakes you, will stand by you. Don't you want a friend who knows everything about you? The deepest, most hidden parts of us that you could expose that to someone and still be loved and accepted. Don't you want that kind of friend? In a 2021 study, almost 50% of Americans said that they have three or fewer friends. The number of people who responded that they have zero close friends was 12% as compared to just 3% in 1990. This is a particularly acute problem for single men. Out of all male respondents, less than half were satisfied with their number of friends and 15% said they had no close friends at all. 
This has been one of the unique gifts of being in the Bonhoeffer house in this season of life for us and our family. The value of friendship, of getting to know people closely, of sharing life together, feasting together, rejoicing together, and weeping and mourning together through the struggles of life. You want someone who will be there for you when it feels like you're all alone, who will bring you a meal when you don't have the strength to cook for yourself. The problem is that friendship is free. C.S. Lewis talks about that in his book, The Four Loves. He says, hence, if you will not misunderstand me, the exquisite arbitrariness and irresponsibility of this love, friendship. I have no duty to be anyone's friend. No man in the world has a duty to be mine. No claims, no shadow of necessity. Friendship is unnecessary, like philosophy, like art, like the universe himself, itself, for God did not need to create. It has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which give value to survival. Friendship's not like marriage or a business contract or even your membership at the country club. It's free. Either party can just leave at any point in time. Don't you want a friend who will never leave you, who is faithful, who knows you completely and still loves you? We just sang about it, that Jesus is that friend he took our sin, he took our stain, he took our guilt. There is, now there is no shame. Grace, he will never leave us or forsake us. He knows the deepest, darkest, sinful aspects of who we are, and yet he moves towards us in love. He wants to be your friend. And don't you want to be that kind of friend to someone else? Trust in the Lord and ask Jesus to teach you how to be that kind of a friend. Let Jesus teach you to be the kind of person whose mouth is full of blessing, who's ready to answer a brother or a sister in the midst of weakness with grace and truth, and you'll get more than just a good reputation. That's the kind of friend that I want, and that's the kind of friend that you need. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your being, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Why do you need to trust in the Lord? Because you'll find a guide and a companion. As we trust in God, he guides us down the path of life. What a beautiful picture that he makes our paths straight. But what is, does that mean that life will be without calamity and struggle versus 11 and 12? Show us that it doesn't. Does that mean that we'll know exactly what to do in every situation, that every hard decision all of a sudden becomes clear and simple, that God will map out the next 30 years for us and we just work the plan? I think trusting God is more like taking a road trip at night. You can only see as far as the lights illuminate in front of you, but you can make a whole road trip that way. Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Think of it like just a little circumference, circle of light around you. It just illuminates enough to take the next step and then the next step after that. If you could see it all, if you had a GPS of the whole route, a trick of the trade, you wouldn't need to trust in the Lord. But he'll not just be a guide to us. He comes as our companion, our friend.
Jesus said to his disciples, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes as our friend and gives us the Holy Spirit as a constant companion. He promised in the Great Commission that he would be with us always to the end of the age. We don't just get wisdom. We get God. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Trust in the Lord and he'll give you life and life abundantly. Healing to your flesh or to your navel, as the KJV reads. God's word, God's presence with us is nutrient rich. It's like drinking a tall glass of water on a hot summer day, summer's day when you come in from a long day of work and you can literally feel the coolness of the water coursing through your bones. The way of folly looks like life in the short term. It looks like this. Just one more episode tonight. I'm too busy to make a meal plan this week. I'm just going to swing by Taco Bell. It's cheap, it's easy, it's delicious. Work is overwhelming. I just need a vacation. The way of folly is the life of ease and comfort and convenience and pleasure. Seems life-giving in the moment, but over time, just one more episode doesn't have me waking up more refreshed and rejuvenated for the day the next morning. Years and years of Taco Bell will do things to you. You work harder and harder and harder to pay for vacation and then think about work the entire time you're on vacation. But what's amazing is that the way of wisdom is not just the way of toil, discomfort, inconvenience, and pain. Pete drew this out for us last week. It's not stodgy, boring, dead moralism. We don't cut ourselves off from our deepest desires. Wisdom changes our appetites towards that which will deeply and lastingly satisfy. The way of wisdom is the way of life and life abundant, as Jesus said in his teaching on the Good Shepherd in John chapter 10. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Psalm 23, health refreshment, green pastures, still waters. This is a qualitatively different kind of life in the way of wisdom. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Trust in the Lord and you'll become a generous person. These two verses aren't simply describing a cause and, and effect relationship that if we input, give first fruits, then God will output wealth. This is not trust, it's manipulation. That's not the God that we worship. That's a needy God, a greedy God, an exacting God. And that's not the gospel, and that's not the God of the Bible. 
What it's describing is this agrarian metaphor that in a society that depended on reaping and sowing, actually bringing out the fruits of the harvest, to give the first fruits of your harvest would be to say, Lord, I trust you that when I give you all of this that I've taken first, that there will be more harvest, that my family won't starve and die. But what about if famine strikes? What about if insects come and eat up all of my crops? What happens if all the workers in my field get sick and die and there's no one to collect the harvest? Are you the Lord of the harvest? Am I the Lord of the harvest? No. And so it calls us to trust in the Lord who is the Lord of the harvest. Trust him that he'll provide everything that you need and he will. And in the process, he'll make you a more generous person. The opposite of generosity is not scarcity. It's thanklessness. A complaining spirit. Why can't they just do their job? It's not that hard. Why isn't anyone fixing that? The same path of highway I drive every Christmas. Could someone just get around to fixing that? I can't wait to get home and write a review about that place. Again, I think Mark Buchanan helps us in the rest of God. He says, ingratitude is an eye disease, every bit as much a heart disease. It sees only flaws, scars, scarcity. Likewise, the God of the thankless is wary, stingy, grudging, bumbling, nitpicky. He's by turns meddlesome and apathetic, suspicious, then indifferent, grubbing about in our domestic trifles one moment and oblivious to our personal catastrophes the next. But to give thanks is a declaration of God's sovereign goodness. It trains us in a growing awareness of that sovereign goodness. You cannot practice thankfulness on a biblical scale without its altering the way you see. Thankfulness changes the way we see. It changes the way I see the man unemployed at the corner of the exit of 581. It changes the way that I hear my children's complaints and cries for help and persistent demands. In generosity, we say, thank you, God. Apart from you, there is no life. There is no harvest. I trust you, and everything that I have is yours. And so I'll give to you my first, my best, in a way that's costly to me. And in doing so, Buchanan continues, it allows us to discover the rest of God, those dimensions of God's world, God's presence, God's character that are hidden always from the thankless. Lastly, why do you need to trust in the Lord? Because you need to be ready to suffer. Verses 11, 11 and 12, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. God loves us. God loves us. He's not an angry father. 
He's a good father. He's loving and attentive and compassionate and wise. And the best thing in the entire world for us is to become more like Jesus Christ. And so he writes to us, my son or my daughter, as a caring parent to their child. But sometimes discipline and teaching looks like reproof and correction, which can be painful. Hebrews 12 says, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but, ye- but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Suffering is real and a real part of the Christian life. The Christian life is not detached from suffering for Christ himself suffered in the flesh for us. Because Jesus suffered, we're able to cry out, Abba, Father. We've come to know Christ as our Father because of Jesus' suffering. God is our Father. In our suffering, God is able to make us more like Jesus, which is the best thing for us. But in this, we have to admit that not all suffering is the same. Working a lifeless, thankless job can be debilitating. It's hard to get up tomorrow morning and to keep going to a job like that day after day. That's suffering, and that's real. It's suffering to lose a relationship with someone whom you wanted to marry. That's painful. But a mother should never have to bury her child. A healthy 32-year-old man shouldn't be in the hospital on life support. And so to say, just let go and let God, or, well, the Lord must be disciplining you, sounds like the fresh guy on the job site. It sounds more like Job's companions than the wisdom of Proverbs. To say those kinds of things in the midst of suffering is an insufficient response to suffering. And this is part of what the wisdom literature is wrestling with, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, that the world ought to operate in a certain way, and it just doesn't all the time. We know too many examples of righteous people who suffer, Jesus Christ being the prime example. But here's the amazing wisdom at the end of this passage, that God wants to prepare us for the day of suffering. He wants to train us to say, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you, again and again. So when the day of calamity comes, you again say, Lord, I trust you. If you can't trust God with a sniffly nose, you won't trust him on a hospital bed. We need help to become wise. We don't gain these things in our own effort or in our own wisdom. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. We need a God who comes to us and makes us wise. We need a Christ who actually gave us himself. God wants to make us wise, and wisdom begins with trust. And trust begins with trusting in Christ. 
his body broken, his blood shed for us, that we could have relationship with him. That we who are weak and foolish, we who dig holes searching for life, searching for treasure, and just keep digging up nothing, need someone to help us. So I want to pray for us, and then, Pete, would you lead us into a time of of contemplation and celebration of the work of Christ.